0: Seth. All right. Well, would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2? While you're opening, while you're getting to the passage, um, I just got to say last week we had uh, all of our plans laid out. We, We were, we had everything worked out so that we had our guest speaker in from our sister church down in Dayton Cale Benefield was up here in the Akron area ready to preach but then Saturday night he came down ill and uh, as you many of you already know you know he, he was so ill he, he, he was sick Sunday morning so he couldn't preach and so we were scrambling Sunday morning with okay what are we going to do and the Lord you know in his faithfulness and his kindness laid on Bert's heart the message that he gave you last week, I mean, he literally put that together in an hour, and it was was excellent. What I found so confirming, though, is I was in the midst of preparing for this message, and so I had already, you know, God had already put something on my heart to share um, from this passage, and um, what was so cool is that Bert's message is just really dovetailed nicely with what what God gave me for today, and so it's a, a similar theme, a similar message. It was really confirming uh, to me with what uh, what the Lord wants to say to us. So, with that, let's uh, let's read from Philippians two. I'm going to read verses twelve through eighteen, and this is the authoritative, inerrant, holy Word of God. So let's read that. Therefore, my beloved all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless the reading preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us understanding and opens our hearts, opens our minds, opens our eyes that we might love you, that we might understand your word, and that we might obey you. So I pray today, Lord God, that your word would have uh, its effect on us, that you would uh, speak to us. Um, Lord, I pray that I would not in any way be a hindrance. Um, Lord, I am aware of my weakness, and I need you. We need you, Lord, Uh, and so would you come in power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, last month... At the parent youth meeting here, uh, I had the privilege of teaching uh, the teens and the parents. And in that m- uh, meeting, I gave the story of a pastor from Seoul, South Korea. His name is Pastor Lee Jong Rock, um, and he he has a wonderful ministry he and his church in the city of seoul about 10 or 12 years ago uh, he had an inspiration um, as he and his workers um, and, the, and the people in his church noticed more and more babies were being abandoned in the streets literally left it to be exposed to die uh, next to not even inside trash cans just next to them uh, to die more and more and more and he had this inspiration I'm just going to cut a hole in the wall in my church and I'm going to make it a box. I'm going to put a sign over that box and it's going to say, don't abandon your babies. Don't leave them. Don't leave your babies. If you have to, please put it in the box here. And just from that, just from that inspiration, 1,600 babies have been saved over those years. Countless people have also heard the gospel. Hundreds have been saved. Babies who would have been rejected have life. It's a beautiful story. He has a huge heart to love the unlovely, this pastor, Pastor Lee, to care for the orphans, most of them disabled um, in some way, some of them severely disabled, and that's why they've been been abandoned. And you can find out more about that ministry in it. there's a beautiful documentary movie called The Dropbox. And I'm not gonna go into much detail of that, but I do want you to watch the movie. But if you do, you'll hear his testimony and you'll hear his interview and you'll see, I think, that pivotal moment where God grabbed his heart and said, I'm gonna use you. See, decades ago, his son was born with, severe, with a severe malformed head and needed surgery he needed reconstructive surgery on his head and to make matters even worse about four months later uh, his son uh, contracted an infection I believe to do with the uh, surgery that led to severe brain damage his son was disabled and could not take care of himself could not talk could not even eat uh, couldn't use the bathroom on his own He spent the first 14 years of his life in a hospital. That's not days, that's not weeks. He spent 14 years in the hospital. At the time, Lee Jong-rak was a businessman and he had to sell his business and all that he had just to take care of his son, to, to pay the bills and to be with his son. He was with his son pretty much all day, every day in the hospital. But in his testimony... Pastor Lee found himself moments after his son was born and he saw what he looked like. He complained. And he confesses this in the interview. He says, I complained in my heart and I said, why God? Why would you do this to me? Why would you give a son that looks like this? Why, why Lord? And that's where the Lord did a work in his heart. Because just then he confesses in his interview, he said, and that's when I put that thought out of my mind. And I did not think that anymore. And I chose to thank God for my son. And that's what started him on the path of caring for thousands of babies. Hundreds of souls heard the gospel. Countless people were affected for the kingdom along the way. He chose not to grumble. And God made him shine in the darkness of Seoul, South Korea and not only Seoul but throughout the whole world now. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter and this part of the letter to the Philippians to tell them to do exactly what Pastor Lee chose to do. He exhorted them that to live life in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to do it without grumbling or complaining. To do so By doing so, you shine in the darkest reaches for the kingdom of God. As usual, I have three points for you today in our message. My first point to you is to work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. And we start our passage today in verse 12 with that well used word, therefore. Paul likes to use that word in his letters. You see it often. It's almost overused, but I guess you can't say that about Scripture. So, whenever we see the word therefore, we are obligated, as Bereans, as good studiers of God's word, we are obligated to ask the question if there's a therefore, what's the therefore therefore? Right? Well, all we have to do is just look back a few verses. And when we look back in the text, we're treated to a breathtaking description of Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, Christ humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and gave us a supreme example of sacrifice and humility. So would you look back with me then? Let's actually... Look back to verses 5 through 11. Let's read those. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. That church is a beautiful passage. That is awe inspiring, depicting the humility and the obedience of Christ and how his death on the cross for you, for me, earned him the highest honors. And so we see then in verse 12, our passage points us back to this and back to the example of Christ and his humility and his condescension, as well as the work he accomplished on the cross. Once again, Paul does what he always does. He brings us back to the center, doesn't he? He brings us back to the gospel, you can't read two paragraphs of Paul's writing without him referring to the cross. Why? Well, this is because you can't get anywhere in the Christian life without the gospel. And I, and I, need, to, I need to actually t- take a pause right now in my message and what, what this passage is having to say. And I need to, I need to confess here to you As I was preparing for this message, I, I chose the passage. I chose 12 verses 12 through 18. It wasn't given to me. I, you know, like Jace didn't say, these are the, your script, you know, your passage. I did, but I still groaned inwardly. Actually, when I had, when I thought about preaching this first point, you see, I saw the text and I actually, I just wanted to get straight to the point of don't grumble, shine. In the world, don't grumble, don't complain, shine. I just wanted to go straight to that, and I confess that because uh, the Lord graciously reminded me this week, even even again this morning, that's a fatal mistake. Paul never, never, never drifted from the centrality of the gospel, and neither should we. Paul never brushed over the fact of the gospel to get to the meatier stuff. And so who am I? Who am I to do that? You see, to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, nothing else. He also said to them, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. To the Philippians, as he is giving them a master's course on joy and rejoicing in the Lord, he writes of one of the most beautiful pictures of Christ, humbling himself where? On the cross. Paul keeps coming back to the gospel. He's taking, it's like he's taking our heads, like we're little kids. He said, don't look over there. No, no, look here. Look. Look here. Keep your eyes here. Keep your focus on the cross. This is what you need to be studying. This is what you need to glory in. This is what you need to celebrate, contemplate, meditate upon. This is what you rejoice over. We need to ask ourselves when's the last time you you cried over your sins. When's the last time you were so broken by your sin because it's against your loving creator? Your God, your savior, your Lord. When is the last time you rejoiced that you've been forgiven? That you're free. That you don't have to work toward your salvation. When's the last time you truly gloried in the cross? Don't, don't venture far from that. Paul never moves from the cross and never, we should neither as well. What is the gospel, right? There's bad news in the gospel. Romans 3.23 tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us can say, I'm all right. I had a pretty good week. I had a pretty good morning. None of us can say that. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 then tells us the bad news that the wages of our sin is death. We all have sinned. We all deserve the death that Jesus bought for us. Galatians 4, 4 then tells us the good news. It starts with that great conjunction. But, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That is the gospel. All we need do is receive it. All we need do is repent. Bow the knee. If you have not responded to the gospel, if you have not heard that good news and repented, let me urge you to do so today. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are centered on here. And so back to to my message, back to Philippians chapter two. It's because of Jesus' sacrifice. It's because of his humility. God the Father then exalted him. In fact, in the end, every person in the history of the world will one day bow down before Jesus and worship him. So we, we, we need to understand that, uh, this point in context. You see, Paul is saying that you will obey Christ one day. Whether we bow the knee to him now and in this life or not, you will bow the knee to him on that day. I have never bowed my knee to another man. I don't plan on doing that. I cannot imagine the humility to do that, to bow to another man. But we will. If you have not already, we all will bow to Jesus. He has earned that place. Let us not misunderstand a statement like this, writes Martin Lloyd Jones about verses 5 through 11. We are reminded here that it is not enough to believe in God. Let me repeat that it is not enough to believe in God or to have a thesis, nor is it enough to say we believe in a supreme being and that we recognize the person of God. That is not the particular thing that makes us Christian. God himself has appointed Christ to be the center. And therefore, we must say with Martin Luther that we know of no other God save Jesus Christ. Amen. We bow our heart, we bow our mind and our soul to Jesus. We pledge our lives to him in complete surrender. We're saying, whatever you ask, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. In that, it is in that vein that we are to work out our salvation. Now, a cursory reading of this text could be confusing. We might wonder if Paul is saying that we actually earn our salvation based on our works, but we know that's not what he means here. He's written so many other places. We don't earn our salvation, we don't work our way to our forgiveness. Here he's talking about something different. He's talking about progressive sanctification, our growth in Christ. It's like we're progressively growing and enjoying the benefits of already being saved. We grow in Christ-likeness through our obedience. And so as we obey Christ day in, day out, in the mundane, in the spectacular, we are working out our salvation. We're working out the fullness of the implications of our f- salvation. And we obey Christ because we marvel at his obedience. He is our inspiration. He is our model. And it's his obedience that is the catalyst for ours. We see him, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere present, fully, and then taking on the form of a man. Now, we often use that word condescending in a negative way. It has a, a negative connotation to us. We often will use it when someone talks to us and they're all haughty with oh, He was so condescending the way he talked to me. I don't like that. I don't like people talking to me in a condescending tone, right? However, in this instance, that word is beautiful. It's glorious. It's wonderful to hear. Because if he had not condescended from where he belongs to where he came, we would be left in our sins. We'd have no hope, church. So that condescension is a beautiful thing. So we look to Christ's humble obedience and we serve him, working out our salvation in gratitude to him. Many of you may have seen or heard of the movie Saving Private Ryan. For you kids, you should not have seen it yet, and I hope you don't for a while. Um, and there is going to be a spoiler here anyway for you adults who have not seen it. It's a wonderful movie, I think. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movie of war, so there's plenty of um, action and um but I, it's, let me tell you a little bit about it. Captain Miller, uh, played by Tom Hanks, leads a team of men deep into the heart of enemy territory in World War II, shortly after the storming of the beaches of Normandy. And they're on a mission to save and to rescue one Private Ryan, played by uh, Matt Damon. And it's the story of this, this small team making their way, somehow miraculously finding him in the midst of a battle. They lost lives in order to save him. In fact, this is the spoiler, sorry, but Tom Hanks is dying at the end of the movie. He had been shot. And Matt Damon, Private Ryan, is standing over him, weeping, knowing what this man has just done for him, that he might then go back home. And he's leaning over Tom Hanks, leaning over Captain Miller, that is, listening to his last words. And his last words to him were Captain Miller saying to him, he's gripping him, he's saying, earn this. Earn this. It's a beautiful scene because you see a close-up of Matt Damon's face crying, and he's got that Matt Damon grimace that looks kind of like a smile. Um, But he's crying, and he's hearing those words, and it fades then to him as an older man, as a grandpa. And he's crying. He has the same face. He's crying because he's standing over the grave marker of Captain Miller. And beside him, he has his wife and his family and his grandchildren. They've come back to Normandy and and visited the gravesite. And he's remembering those words, earn this. And he, and he turns to his wife and he says, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've been a good man. In tears. The sacrifice of Captain Miller so gripped um, Private Ryan that he lived his life to earn what that man bought for him. He wanted to be a good man. He wanted to be a good husband, a good father, a good grandfather. In light of that sacrifice, we get to serve Christ. We get to serve him because of the ultimate sacrifice that he gave for us. But unlike the movie, we don't get to earn it. We don't have to earn it. It's already been paid for. It's already been earned for us. Our salvation has already been bought. And li- what we do is we live in gratitude to Christ. We are not under a burden to earn that. Praise God. And so, we live in light of that. But yet we still feel a calling, right? Because the gospel brings freedom. The gospel brings comfort and, co- and forgiveness of sins. But then the gospel also then brings a calling. And we are called to a life to live worthy of the gospel. And so we feel that weight. We feel the reverence of, that accompanies this task of living the Christian life. This is what Paul is talking about when he writes, work out your own salvation with fear, and with trembling this is an awesome calling that we have in God so let's make this practical what does total submission to Christ look like well for one it means avoiding avoiding everything that is opposed to God keeping it out of our lives anything that is opposed to God we have nothing to do with that's complete submission to Christ it means devoting your life to the work he calls you to, no matter where, no matter who you are, no matter where, what station of life, no matter what vocation you're in. It means living devoted to him. Devoting our lives to prayer. Devoting our lives to holding fast to his word, as Paul writes. It means loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, and all of your might, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It means showing mercy to your spouse after the billionth time they messed up. It means showing honor to your father, and especially today to your mother. Picking up your room without being asked. It means seeking a pure life in thought and in deed. Think of Pastor Lee, that moment he had his son Even in his thoughts, he had to repent. That's what it means to live in total submission to Christ. Not entertaining thoughts that are impure, controlling your anger on a stressful day. Work out your own salvation takes a total and unconditional submission to God. We are called to obey God the same way Jesus did, as displayed in verses 5 through 11. Now, that leads me to my second point, which is to do all things without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without murmuring or questioning, without arguing or complaining. Do all things. What does do all things mean? It means all the things that God called us to do. Now, I could mean every little thing that we do throughout our days down to the most mundane task, but I think Paul seems to be indicating all the things he, Christ, has asked us to do. This, this living out the Christian life, obedience to Christ in all things. And so we are to do all these things without grumbling or disputing. That word grumbling, what does that mean? It means that it's the fruit of a heart that's complaining. It's like the observable action of a root of stubborn will, of rebellion. I don't like what you have for me right now. This stinks. This is not what's best for me. I cannot believe I have to do this again. The act of grumbling comes from a heart. Really, that doesn't love. It does not love God, and it doubts God's love for it. That's what grumbling is. It's in the heart, and it starts in the heart. And then the disputing, the arguing, the questioning is what comes out. Disputing means arguing. To dispute something means to come out and just say it, that it's false. Say that it's wrong. It's not just disagreeing now in your heart or in your mind. This time, you're arguing. It's outward. It's verbal. I'm disputing with you. I'm going to take that up with you. I think you're wrong, God. So we start with a grumbling heart that lacks love. And doubts God's love. and We move on to verbally, outwardly disputing God's kindness, disputing his love for us and disputing his direction for us. Paul is telling us to do all things in your heart and in your deeds. And what I love about this letter to the Philippians is that it really is Paul giving a master's class on the opposite of Complaining. The absolute opposite of disputing. He's an example to them. Like in verse, or chapter 3, verse 17, he even says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's the example of contentedness, of humility, faith. It's displayed all throughout this letter. It's like a natural connection he's showing between not complaining and being a witness for Christ. Back in chapter one, verses 12 through 18, um, he explains how his very imprisonment has led to his own rejoicing. That's just crazy. Despite being jailed for doing what's right. I mean, he's obeying Christ by preaching the gospel preaching good news to the people. He's in jail, and not only that, to top it off, he's being maligned while he is in jail. He writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I mean, this is taking, you know, count your blessings to the extreme so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's just counting them off. Thank you, God, that I'm in this jail. He goes on, some indeed preach Christ from envy and and rivalry, but, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm here, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He's probably laughing while he's writing this. They think that they're going to afflict me in my imprisonment by doing this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, he says. I mean, let's, all right, let's be honest here. How many of us would be able to rejoice in that? This isn't, you know, a clean four by four cell, you know, with a bunk and a little sink in bars. No, I, this is chained in a du- Dungeon. No sunlight, no light. What if something? What if someone was doing something to hurt you while you were in that jail? How easy it would have been to blame God for this. God, I'm doing Your work. Why do You have me here, of all places? What? Why are people maligning me, Lord? I'm doing Your work. I'm trying to obey You. I mean, how easy would it have been? I know my own heart. I mean, I even just this past week, I, it does not take much for me to complain. It does not take much for me to grumble. I mean, when's the last time you complained? Did you spill your coffee? How did you respond? I mean, this, this past week, I'm holding my mug and, and, and letting the kids come into the classroom. Hey, how you doing? Boom. Sophia bumps into me, and literally, my coffee is down my front, down my pants. And it's in the morning. Like, I, I got nothing. I, c- I can't go home and change. I got coffee all over me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Sophia, it's all right. Yeah, you can go to your desk. No, no. <laughs> that's not how I responded. No, unfortunately, um, I complained, definitely. I was grumbling in my heart. It doesn't take much, does it? You see, we grumble when our eyes are on ourselves. And we rejoice when our eyes are on Christ. We grumble when all we do is look at ourselves. And if we have our eyes instead fixed on Christ, we can't help but shine. We can't help but rejoice. Our grumbling, you see, hinders our witness. What does it communicate to the world if we're given to complaining? What do you want the world to see about you? Ought we not to be known as those who are filled with joy and filled with faith no no matter what the circumstances? Paul exudes joy in a letter to the Philippians, and it shines in a world of darkness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, again, he says, the New Testament is always at great pains to show that to be a Christian is to be entirely different from the man who is not. We cannot reiterate that too frequently. It's not a difference in degrees, he's saying, but in kind. It's not a difference in certain things we do in life, something quantitative. It is a qualitative difference. It is a vital one. The difference between belonging to a family and not belonging. It's a blood relationship. When God takes hold of us with the gospel, when we are gripped with the reality that we serve the King of the universe who has shed his own blood for our sins, he has purchased us and made us his own with his own very own life when we truly bow the knee to him and serve him readily, serve him cheerfully, we're going to shine. And we do. We shine in this world of darkness. We'll stand out like stars amidst a dark backdrop of a night sky. Paul describes his generation as crooked and twisted. And we too, we can describe our own generation that way as well, I'm sure. Let me just give you some facts. I'll just break your heart. One in every four pregnancies in the entire world end in voluntary abortion. It's one in four. The U.S. divorce rate, it's among the highest in the world. Here in America alone, there have been 700,000 plus drug overdose deaths since 2000. Most recent crime statistics in the the U.S. show a burglary takes place every 25.7 seconds. Every 3.8 minutes, a rape happens. Every 32.5 minutes, a murder happens. We live in a dark world, a crooked and twisted generation. We shine as lights by the very nature of who God made us to be. So let us live that out, let us work out that salvation, let us be a shining light in the darkness. Not only are we adopted into God's family as his children, he does the miraculous, he does the incomprehensible by giving us his spirit, making us to be born again. The shining of our light occurs in our everyday interactions then. The people around us see how we respond to trying situations. They see how we respond to setbacks and to things that don't go as we had planned. They watch us deal with adversity, they and they watch us even deal sometimes with opposition. Our witness accrues over time, day in and day out. People form an opinion of us, whether we like it or not, whether it's good or ill. And so Paul tells us, he says that when we live for Christ without grumbling or disputing, when we bow to him, in all we do, we will be blameless. We will be innocent and without blemish. Now, he's not saying we'll be sinless. To be blameless and innocent means those around us can't point their finger and say, I see you, you hypocrite. No, we're to live authentically. Here I am. We're to live honestly. We are to live for Christ with integrity. We're to remain pure and undefiled by sin and the world, and God will keep us. And our reminder in the end of our passage today is that we, we represent more than just ourselves. Starting in the second half of verse 16, Paul writes, So that in the day of Christ, I, Paul is writing here, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad. I'm glad. Rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So we don't live, only live this Christian life to shine for our own sake, he's saying. We're reminded that we are children of the living God. As I've told you many times, I am a fifth grade teacher in the public schools. And, and we go, when we go on field trips, I have a routine with my students. So I'll sit them down before we go. Sometimes it'll be on the bus and I'll tell the bus driver, don't, don't go yet. Uh-uh. Give me your eyes. I'm going to give you my teacher voice now. Listen to me. You represent me. When you go where we're going, you hear me. You make me proud. You make me proud. And if you don't care about me, you know you represent Yutz Intermediate School. And I don't want to hear bad reports come back about Yutz Intermediate School because of your behavior. You hear me? I'm I'm using my teacher voice here. But I'll always end with this. I'll always end with this. And if you don't care about yutz, you make your mama proud. You make your family proud. Your mom does not raise you to be a fool. So don't act a fool. Make your mama proud. And it's like Paul is sending that message to the Philippians, isn't it? Make me proud. And so, in honor of Mother's Day, if you're taking notes, my last point is, make your mama proud. <laughs> I'm, going to use my, I'm going to use my teacher voice on you guys now, too. Your mama raised you to be good. And if you are fortunate enough, your mama taught you about Jesus. Your mama wants you to love him and serve him. You make your mama proud. Paul expressed the heart of the, every parent to the Philippians. And you can just imagine your mama saying it right now. You make your mama proud. Make me proud. That's the pattern and the heart of Jesus. We live to bring honor to his name. Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Make me proud, he says. Can't you see that in the mothers? I do this every day for you. I pour out my life for you. I pick up your clothes. I do your dishes. I make you meals every day. You make me proud. Make me proud. And don't you forget where you came from. Most importantly, you carry the name of Jesus everywhere you go. Wear that mantle with humility, but not with shame. Wear it with pride, boasting not in yourself, because you're nothing. You boast in the cross only. The grace of God in your life makes you blameless and innocent. You make me proud. Now, Mahatma Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That is a tragedy. It makes me suspicious. Um, I suspect that he either doesn't know Christ, which I think is true, or he never really truly met a Christian who's gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a tragedy. And so, Paul is saying to us today, I think your mama would say to you today, don't let that ever be said about you. May we shine as lights in this dark world, thanks to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? father god we thank you we thank you that you've given us this treasure that we can hold and we are but jars of clay father god we truly are nothing without you but yet you've given us this explosive gospel this beautiful light that we can then share with the world thank you god I pray that we would never venture far from this truth, never venture far from the gospel, God. And then, Lord, may we with ready and cheerful hearts obey you, that we might then shine and give the gospel to the world. May we honor you. May we honor your name. May we make you proud, Father God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.